0: I'm Eddie Rowley, and you're listening to My Country Life, a podcast that takes you backstage and into the real lives of Ireland's country music, kings and queens. Each podcast in this series features a country star opening up the doors to their past and taking us on their personal journey into the spotlight. Along the way, they reveal their highs and lows, happiness and heartaches, and their struggle to find success. Here we meet Father Brian Darcy, who, among other roles, has been chaplain to the world of Irish show business and a friend and confidant to our entertainers through the decades. Father Brian has had a remarkable and varied life, but in this two-part podcast, we focus on his experiences through the world of music, starting in the showband era back in the 1960s. Father Brian takes us back to his idyllic childhood in County Fermanagh, playing football and listening to modern music. And he talks about his decision to become a priest and the dark days that followed. This is My Country Life, a Sunday world podcast. So, Father Brian, welcome to My Country Life.
1: I'm delighted, so I didn't think it would ever get on. Uh, It was such a a race of stars on, which is great, and congratulations on it. And Actually, it's a fantastic thing because it'll actually give a history of country music in time, in Ireland, at a a very crucial time, a change of a time too. So it's a very useful and a very good thing, not just for entertainment's sake, but for... uh, You can imagine, for example, if there had been a thing like that for the beginning of the show bands, how different our knowledge and history of the Showband era would have been yeah, uh, if we had that kind of information that you were finding out over simple chats with the people who run the business at the moment, who are the business. And
0: you were there from the very start. And we, we, we'll go back to that later on. But first of all, uh, a little bit about your, your, your background and your childhood. You're a Fermanagh man. Uh, I'm uh,
1: born in Fermanagh, uh, all right. Um, 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 two of my family were born in Oma. Uh, okay. because uh, my father worked on the railway and he was uh, a good footballer at the time uh, and played Hugh. for F- Hugh Darcy and he played for Fermanagh for 10 years or more and then um, he went to Oman played there with Oman um, there wasn't much during the war to own stuff anyway but he played the, with them uh, and then he got changed back to Neskillen uh, just in, in uh, 1945 just in time to make me a Fermanagh man instead of a Oman man right. which means uh, I've never won a nurse the title and, <laughs> <laughs> and if you wait waited six months I'd seven because <laughs> you're a huge
0: GAA
1: fan aren't you I'd be, I'd yeah. be a huge GAA fan I, I like you know I like I like politics I like religion uh, I like people mainly and, and if you do that you're, you're very much involved in everything I like music I like I like GAA I, I also have a, I was chaplain at Shamrock Rovers for 10 years uh with Jimmy McLaughlin when they were managing in the 80s and they won I think five leagues and six cups to four cups uh, in that stage was a very successful period in Rovers history um, and uh, so I, you know I follow all sports I was Barry McGuigan's chaplain when he was fighting all over the place too uh, and then of course our, our late and great Jimmy McGee um, we uh, both of us were uh, permanent fixtures in the National Stadium for amateur boxing as well uh, as many other things so I've always had a keen interest in that I don't take holidays I don't do anything but I I find that if you keep in touch with people, it keeps you f- your feet rooted. And the best way to keep it is, is the very things, the human things that we do. Football, sport, joy, happiness, arts. Uh, and, you know, that's how you're able to know how people feel and you're able to be of some value to them because you speak their language.
0: They're a common, it's a common language. Common language, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And it all started for you in, in, in the family home, a little, a little cosy little cottage, as you described it, and your dad being a mad GA fan. The the guy, the men would, would uh, come around to the house most nights of the week to talk about football. And
1: most, and my father was chairman of the club as well for a long time. And a poor club. Emigration hit his heart at the time. I remember uh, my father being chairman of the club and there was no field in the town. So they went round. Uh, himself, and a man called Sandy McConnell, the father of the great McConnell family. Cormac McConnell, a journalist. Sean McConnell, the agricultural correspondent of the Irish Times. Mickey McConnell, still with the uh, Kerry Mantor-Lee. um, Cahill McConnell, uh, who was with the Boys of the Lock and a great musician too. So uh, their father, Sandy, and my father uh, would have the meetings in our house. We had a good, big hearth, turf, fire with ash sticks burning and them clicking at night uh, and a tilly lamp. Uh, and then we got the electricity. So it was one of the few houses that was electricity because we were in a unionist area uh, and electricity came to the unionists before it came to the to the, to the the rest of the people. So we happened to get it early. So that's how we started. That's how it started in football. We, there was no... There was no television that time. Uh, In fact, it was very rarely what they called a wireless. Now, Eddie, you're too young to know what a wireless is. (laughs) I
0: know Uh, what a wireless (laughs) is. (laughs) Uh,
1: And um, uh, it it was a big Morphe Richards wireless, um, and it had a wet battery, which, uh, I mean, mean you had to get the battery charged uh, every week. And so you had two bathrooms. You brought one into the in town to get it charged and then uh, you brought it back and then you brought the other one in and that's how it is. It was saved for news um, uh, football um, and a play on a Sunday night from uh, the RTE players. They used to have an hour-long player or more every Sunday night. People gathered for that around the place and came in uh, to it. But matches were the big things. Matches, football matches were the big things on the radio. Um, and it'd be out the door listening to it. Um, yeah. And I knew everything about Crow Park years before I ever got to it. And I, my biggest worry, that, I was that innocent at the time. I couldn't understand how Michael O'Hare fitted in that box. <laughs> It's yeah. child's imagination, just, I just couldn't put the two together. Yeah. And later I became great friends with Michael O'Hare uh, and Tony and, and Peter and all of them uh, through the GAA and we used to laugh about that and uh, uh, how Molly, the wife, uh, how, how Michael fitted into a little box like that. Um, and he broadcasts 99 All-Irelands. Wow. I can Incredible. He, he didn't get the thunders when he got a stroke before the 100. Ah,
0: very sad. Yeah, yeah. Very sad. And go, going back to those childhood days, you, you said uh, when, when the men would come around before the telly and the radio and everything like that to chat about football, that's where you learn the art of storytelling.
1: It, most certainly it is. Uh, and and old fellas used to come in. Pensioners, we were on the side of the road, uh, uh, um, which not every house was, you know, and the roads were dark and there was nothing. On it. They'd go down to Cathcart's shop and they'd get their pension or get a, you know, a loaf or something like that. There wasn't a whole pile to get. On the way in, the, our house on the side of the road. And uninvited, of course, and nobody ever was invited in. They just knocked the door. I kind of come in. I'd come on in and sit down and have a cup of tea and, and break their journey home or dry themselves out from the rain, which they often did at a fire. Um, and then they would start chatting, you know, and they tell you about. And I, I was over listening to these men, you know, talking about ghost stories, about great footballers that were there, and uh, learned the artist storytelling from a man who start a story, and you knew it was a good story when everybody else stopped, right, and listened. Yeah. And he didn't know he was a good storyteller, but he had it worked out in his head so well that he, uh, you know, he he, um, he broke the story generally, unfolded the story just beautifully and you were on the tip of your seat waiting to hear this had ended, how this would end. Um, and of course he couldn't go home until it did end. Uh, and and that was wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah. You know, the people would say things backwards. There was a man who used to come into our house and he, he had false teeth and he used to rattle them in the face and made, his, he was able to turn the teeth from top to bottom without taking them out. You know, he used to <laughs> rattle them in his head. And my brother and myself used to wonder when he was going to do this. And he used to say funny things, very funny things, not knowing that he had said them. And one night, uh, he, he said "He said to my father, Hugh, about to go home, I left the door in bed and Molly wide open. <laughs> <laughs> Molly was <laughs> He think he meant it the other way. Yeah, around. Yes, yes. <laughs> Molly in bed, and the door wide open. <laughs> But we laughed at that for many yeah, days. Great characters. Just fabulous characters, you know, fabulous characters. Storytellers, interesting people, knew, knew they were human beings. Uh, and were, the great thing about those films, the other thing I learned from that, Eddie, was never to be judgmental. The, you know, if there was a story told that somebody went to or had bad luck or a girl became pregnant or whatever it is, there was never a judgment. Never a judgment. There was always a compassionate view on it, um, which wasn't, wasn't, you know, which was unusual at the time. Uh, it wasn't that anybody was over religious, they just were decent. Yeah. Um, you played football yourself? Yeah, played yeah. football yeah. night, noon, and morning. had to be a footballer because my father was a footballer uh, and there was no choice of being a footballer. It didn't matter anyway. You know, we had a rubber ball and we bounced it against the side of the wall. The McConnells were a bit richer. They had a shop and they could get a leather ball and so therefore we had to they always had the home venue we had to cross the fields and play with them with a the leather ball that was heavy and got wet and and so forth and we played our lines between the apple trees uh, and uh, you know whatever Michael O'Hare had said the previous Sunday he Michael, Michael, Michael O'Hare used to say about the great Mick O'Connell uh, you know he pretended it goes right and goes left and of course that was what you always tried to do you made it to go left and goes right that was how you you passed a man of the solo, you see, and we'd all be doing this. And we had our own language and our own way of doing it and free kicks and all the rest of it. Um, and we knew rules inside out. And it was a wonderful, wonderful way of uh, being fit, being enthusiastic, knowing how to be beaten and knowing how to win. Yeah. You, you learn so many lessons. And the discipline that. that
0: goes with the, being on the team. And that's what I mean, the
1: discipline yeah. that goes out of being able to take whatever it was. And then my father or Sandy McConnell would come out and I'd say, now, you see what you're doing there. That's wrong. You don't do that. You know. Mm-hmm. You 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 sold it into that. Why didn't you pass that ball before you sold it into that? Yeah. You know, so you began to learn and think about the game. Uh and no, you don't you don't kick it with the point of your toe. You kick it with your instep. Kick it with your instep. The point of your toe, you don't know where it's going to go. You kick it with your instep, you can direct it. And you catch a ball with your two hands behind it and immediately you pull it into your chest. Otherwise, it'll be somebody can hit a box, take it out of your chest. Now, that's in the 50s before coaching was heard of. They just passed on their knowledge to you if you were good enough to do it. And it was great. It was good knowledge. So I played football. Were you uh, any good? I wasn't bad. I wasn't bad. I would like to have been better, uh, but I wasn't bad. No, I was was good enough in the the area. My father used to say, if you stick at it, you'll you'll be all right, which was a high compliment. Uh, But then again, they'd come off a game and say ah, you played alright Brent but you'll never be as good as your father <laughs> so you know you can't win you yeah, know I mean. yeah. but he was never like that and I, you know I played I won an the 15 county championship and a minor county championship as well played for the county minors once because in those days, that's all you did play because you were beaten in the first round. So that was it. Played in a for the local club, the local club, uh, in a, an amalgam club. Um, that year that I entered, nineteen sixty-two, I played uh, for the seniors and uh, as a seventeen-year-old, come on as a seventeen-year-old, uh, and uh, um, used to come on for the last twenty minutes of it. As a you know, I wasn't, I was even too young to be. at another year as a minor at that stage, uh, but I was seventeen, and you come on at that. And, and you you know, you'd run them ragged. You had a bit of legs and you could run, keep out of trouble that way. That's what they always said to me. I won't mm-hmm. put you on now because you get hit. But when you come on, they'll be too tired. You can run away from them. Keep, get the ball and run, run, run. And that's what you did. You, you, you tried to put, make a contribution that way. So we got to a county final in 1962, Canole and Ruslay, Um And I entered the Passionist congregation to be a priest on the 1st of September, Saturday in 1962. And the final was played the next day. Oh dear. So yeah. uh, uh that was the end of my football career. Right. Uh, yeah. When I entered, there was no, you weren't allowed to play. And I didn't know, we weren't allowed letters. We were locked up for, it was an extremely tough regime. Nobody could visit you for the first year at all. Uh, you couldn't get out. Uh, you, you know, you went to bed at nine o'clock, you got up at two o'clock and you prayed for an hour until three o'clock and you went back to bed at three o'clock and got up at six o'clock. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was was a rough setup but the first i heard who won that match was christmas day because that's the first letter we got okay yeah and yeah. i never knew the county final that i should have been playing in never knew who won it even though it was played five miles up the road right
0: right god uh, it's crazy when you think about it now crazy. You know, yeah. when i
1: went to ucd we, i did play quite a lot of football clerical football and of course then i played for 40 years or near, no, 20, 35 years with Jimmy McGee All-Stars. Oh,
0: yeah, what, so, you raised about 6 million or uh, 8 million uh, or something uh, like that? that? used to
1: vary according to inflation.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: so <laughs> Who was telling the story? <laughs> like Who was telling the story? Uh, Jimmy would just say uh, millions, which, pro- which probably was right, because in yeah. 1966, yeah. Uh, 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 we recently had a, we saw a little thing, Paul, uh, Marcus son came across a thing of Jimmy, a diary that had the first three years of the All-Star a report on each match by Jimmy in his own hand. Really, we never knew it existed. Never, Jimmy knew it existed, yeah. and to us, three thousand pound and four thousand pound in sixty six, sixty seven. That's amount. what they were. I mean, well, well, that's huge money.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: that's it. Yeah. And so, so it probably was millions over the over fifty
0: years we were on the road. And these were all the all the people in the music industry. So we're going to primarily talk about your 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 life in music because uh, if we were to take in your entire life, it's I would suggest to people to buy your book. Uh, Aye, it it has, has to be said. There's It's a fabulous book. Well, thank you for free. saying that. It no, really no, is. No, no, no. Um, it's an, an incredible life. But we're, we're talking about music in this podcast. And um, I suppose Radio Luxembourg, really, uh, when you got your electricity, um, introduced you to pop music.
1: Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You know, there, there, were, there were very few programmes in RTE uh, at yes. that stage, radio air, there'd be people like Walton's program and that sort of music, and the great Joe Lynch, who was a comedian from Cork, was also a very good singer, uh, and that sort of thing you would have, and the Richie Fitzgerald Kelly band, you, you know those sort of things, and and you listened and you knew I knew all about them, and hearing Kelly's Kelly band and all of those with Brendan Shinesard started, all those Kelly bands, Malachy Durish and uh, there were all of those McCusker brothers from my man, There was there was a row of them around the place, Kilfenora, of course, uh, and all of those and. Uh, as a role, Kayleigh, man. there were so many of them and they were, they, were, they were like bands at that time and they stopped playing Kayleigh and they became playing in old time. That is to say they played Kelly music and then they would do uh, if you want to put it secular songs old time waltzes and hits uh, for half of it so it was called Cayley and Old Time right. uh, and that was the precursor precursor to the bands uh, to the bands, bands. And, and and then but Radio Luxembourg came on the thing it was 208 on the dial it was a medium wave 208 on the dial and I never had that off I had that on all the time and my father used to say you can't study with that racket <laughs> you know and I we've all
0: heard that Brian <laughs>
1: I said, well, I can't study without that record, and neither I could, yeah. uh, you know. I'm, I'm, and even to this day, if I'm doing something and thinking of, music it, I music and music, I let music on, listening to it,
0: uh,
1: and, yeah. and, and, uh, and that's the way it is. And to Pete Murray and all of those guys, guys that I met later, working in the BBC, mm. um, um, and uh, you know, there was Irish requests, and there was. Then that's when you heard the real pop music of the time uh And you know that, and it just became a huge, huge thing, and the show bands came, and then visits to Ireland fell like Billy Fury and Lonnie Dunnegan and Jim Reeves and uh, Acker Bilk and all of those ones used to come on a short tour of Ireland too. Sure, it was you know the world was imagine imagine Billy Fury coming to this, imagine yeah. Adam Field coming to your local place and you 'd go to it the, the fact that we got off the basic hills and got into cars was also a big help. The whole thing came together. Previously yeah. you could only dance in your own local hall because you could only go in on a basic so mere, yet so did the term show band come from show band actually the, the actual term show band came from america believe it or not um the original show band was the tommy darcy show band uh, and he had a, a national broadcast uh in which uh um a half an hour of which uh, I don't know. I presume it was if it was in America, it could be on any night. If you know, it was a, a, a spread out all over the place at various nights. And it became—I never heard it now, but I only heard this subsequently. Uh, and he had showtime uh, with the uh, Tommy Darcy band. And, and then he would play the show songs and the popular hit songs instead of jazz, instead of Dixon and jazz, and instead of, um, you know, the Den Miller jazz and all of that. Instead of all of that, they, they, they developed it into, the, they also would play Caleigh in old time, as it where they'd play jazz in old time, and, and the song, that's when the songs came in. And that's when show band was first used, but the first time it was used in Ireland, The Clipper Carlton Band were a band in Strabane, And the Clippers, um, one of whom is still alive as we speak, one of the O'Hagans is still alive, the only one. Um, And um, I literally did a documentary on them, which I'm delighted I did for BBC Radio. I did it it because I actually got the story from them, from exactly what happened. There was a band in Strabane. Uh, Hugh Tirish had the band and the boys thought they weren't being paid enough and one Saturday night they all walked out at about three o'clock in the afternoon and Hugh had a band that night. They thought by doing that he would have to pay them but Hugh got on his bicycle and he knew young fellas around the place um, uh, and and he got a number of young fellas and they were able to play for about half an hour, they had enough songs for about half an hour. And the dance that time was five hours. Uh, a band had to play five hours. Um, and so what they did was, he had known that they used to do little shows and sketches in their local concert hall before a big play. Like the old days, there was a small picture on before the big picture. In a country hall, there'd be a small variety act before the big play and so forth he knew these guys and he rounded them all up on his bicycle and he got them to a place and how much can you play and then so we'll never do the five hours well what we'll do is we'll do our own half hour and then we'll do a play that you did a variety act that you did miming and so forth and then we'll do the other half the same half hour and then we'll do another variety so they got through the night of the half hour and a variety and a, half hour, and a variety uh, and what had happened was then they became known as the band who put on a show right in the local area yeah so they were beginning to get big and they went down to the imperial hotel in dundalk they told me uh, and by this stage they were not called a huge tourist band but the Clipper Carlton Band. A competition had been run in Fintana, uh, a Hall as to uh, the, what we'd call this Hugh Tyrish Band, a better name. Uh, and the one that won it was the Clipper Carlton Band. And the Clipper, uh, uh, there was a Carlton Band one night and Hugh Tyrish another night. So they, the Clipper was actually a plane that was used by the Americans during the war that could land on water or, and it had this, uh, water or land, and it had this fascinating thing. Lock was there, and it used to land in the air, and it was, you know, just new and fresh and brilliant and all the rest of it. And there were two in the final of, they got 10 pence each. They got 10, it was 10 pence centre, and they got a pound for it. And two in the final were, will it be, uh, the Sweet Afton Band, because because somebody said underneath it is not a player among them, <laughs> <laughs> or the Clipper Carlton Band. Hugo uh, Hugo Quinn was a member of it. He was a sign writer, and he said, "That's the one. See, see, I could do something with that." Right. And they were called the Clipper Carlton Band. So they went to Dundalk. Sorry about this long story. Yes, they went it's to Dundalk. Um, and on the edge of the instead of being the band of been on a show, on the side of the wall was the Clipper Carlton okay. Show hyphen band. Okay. that was the start. And that was the first time they ever heard of. So they said, Yeah, that's it. We'll call ourselves a show band. Yeah. Uh, and that's 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 how it came. Were they a seated band back then? They, they they initially were, but yeah. part of their thing of putting on a show was that they stood up and left the music aside. Right. The ones who really took that to the nth degree were the Royal Show Band. Okay. who were a group of young fellas, 18 and 19, Brendan Boyer, Tom Dunphy, Eddie O'Sullivan, um, Michael Carpenter, and, uh, you know, Charlie Matthews. Uh, uh, and They were just brilliant. They were a, a band. And in the late 50s, T.J. Bourne got them. And T.J., God be good to him, uh, had a, a, manager.
0: He was, uh, uh, a show band manager. He, you know,
1: he, was, he was actually a man who sold musical instruments. Okay. And he thought, he saw these guys and he thought, one uh, uh, Jim Conlan wanted to buy a guitar, and he says, "Do you play a guitar?" he says, "I'm playing it now and he says and so he he says, "Do your friends play this and that's t j saw this, and he thought these guys are different, you know these guys are different and uh, he got them together, got them together, rehearsed them to an you know, the inch of their death, put them in beautiful suits, and put them in a major debt by giving them a Mercedes van with airplane seats in it right to tour yeah
0: this was the big time now
1: this was the big time yeah and in 58 59 they started doing that 59 they came to inniskillen i didn't know who they were or ever heard of them but it was coming home from school with a few of us and this van mercedes van was sitting outside the town hall in inniskillen with the royal show it, right I yeah. didn't you know who or what this was. I went home and I begged my father, could I go to that? I just wanted I went to it that night. Elvis Presley, Tom Dunphy, Jim Reeves, rock and roll, fantastic from beginning to end.
0: This was Radio Luxembourg coming to life in this your, in your a village. This was Yeah, yeah.
1: That's what it was. Yeah. You know, Charlie Matthews did the... Four of the Royal Showmen had number ones. Very stages. Now, there were no records until 63. Uh, of any description. 62, um, uh, they recorded, but it was released in 63. Uh, and the first one was Eamon O'Shea's um, Come Down the Mountain Katie Daly." Come down the mountain, Katie Daily Come down from the mountain, Katie do Oh, can't you hear us calling Katie Daily We want to drink your Irish Mountain Dew with her old man Katie came from Tipperary In the pioneering year of 42 Her old man, he was shot in Tombstone City For the making of his Irish mountain dew Oh, come down the mountain Katie daily Come down from the mountain Katie do and Brandon Boyer wasn't the lead singer, it was Tom Dunphy and Jim Condon were And the flip side was Tom Dunphy and Jim Condon doing a, a, a great Loven Brothers song called I Heard the Bluebirds Sing. That was the first show band record that ever. Then, then came Elvis and Kiss Me Quick that, that, that Brendan did. The um, Hucklebook later still, uh, I ran all the way home. All Elvis tracks that weren't his here, Brendan did them and it just, electrified the place and all of a sudden it wasn't enough to come and play music he had a bit on a show I mean one of the part of the thing was Brendan uh, um, Tom Dunphy on the bass guitar it it'd bend over and Brendan as Elvis would jump over him on stage right you know yeah. Brendan's only 18 at the time yeah
0: uh,
1: and, and it was it. I, I, that's once I saw that that was the bug that hit me I, once I saw that I said this is just, I never was as excited about anything in my life. It just was the thing that clicked music. And then I went to, I was going to Oma, had been in Oma in school, and there was a Saint Duties band, and a group group of fellas started there. There were a couple of bands started together. Melody Aces came from that area, but th- these young fellas, uh, Brian Collin, Frankie McBride, Artie Midland, uh, Leo Dorn, Ray Moore, they all got together as the platter show band, and they were sued by the Platters in America. Okay. for using their name, as the Drifters were uh, initially as well. Uh, and Joe Dolan's band. Joe Dolan's band. Yeah. Uh, and they, they had to change it to Platter Men. Right. And yeah. Jim Aiken became their manager. Uh, okay. And, yeah. and that's, that was how he started the business. Later as
0: well. to, be on, to go on and become one of the biggest promoters in, in, in Ireland. In, well, in the world. In the world, in the world yeah. I, Absolutely.
1: Well, when, when, when you die and Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood Fly in
0: from Nashville, from
1: Oklahoma, Oklahoma uh, yeah. in a private jet. Yeah, into the plane and come in and sit in the front row of the chapel.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and 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 uh, Charlie Pride and John Danes the same. They all came over. So,
0: so Brian, you you were really excited by all of this. Mm. This is a fantastic time in in any teenager's life. You know, great bands, great music, finally in Ireland, and you end up going into the priesthood and leaving it all behind. <laughs> what were you thinking of?
1: <laughs> oh, many bishops bishop asked that <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> And many times I've asked myself that too. I don't know. I suppose it's a, it's a funny thing. I really, the night before I entered, I went to a dance with my brother in the Astoria Ballroom in Bundoran. The, uh, the Melodiasis and the, uh, the Capital Show Band were there. That's that's how it was so much in me. Um, but I just had something about a priest that said to me in the confession box one day, he said, you should think of becoming a priest. And I had no notion of becoming a priest, you know. And I went home and told my mother and them what the priest had said. And they said, put that out of your head, you're not becoming a priest. You're not good enough. You're too fond of music and you're too fond of football, you'll never make a priest. (laughs) How right they were.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How right they were. 3,000 years later, here you are.
1: (laughs) Uh, Talking about music. All I had to do was, I said, (laughs) I have to give this a try. Yeah. So at the age of 17 and three months, um, I entered it uh, in the Grand for this awful year. Um, And then I, I, I got through that and took vows and was sent to Dublin to university at 18. Um, my mother died at 19, uh, which sort of straightened my mind and how I think I thought about things a lot after that, you know. Cause she was she was genuinely a good woman. Um, and, and
0: Brian, sorry, you you only saw your mother twice? Twice when after you went entered. After, after yeah, you entered.
1: Uh, twice after you entered, the second time being in the hospital. The night before she died,
0: even though you were just down the road,
1: I even, I even, we didn't see them at all for the first year, thirteen months, as a matter of fact. and Then I made vows, and they were allowed to come to that. Okay. So, and yeah. then we weren't allowed home at all, as students either. Um, um, uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was wrong. And I wouldn't yeah. attempt to defend it. I wouldn't say it was brave or not any of us. You just, you got into that thing of, well, if I want to be a priest, I have to put up with this.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: So that, and you put up with it, knowing that it was stupid, knowing that it wasn't good. And I was at university; we were not supposed to talk to anybody at all. I talked to everybody I could. <laughs> That's not like you, Brian. <laughs> no, <laughs> no the, and, and, and you know because I, I knew in my head that Vatican II was announced the year I was an innovation. and anything I read about that was telling me we have got to change. Now my biggest fault was. I actually believed that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I believed that that was what we were supposed to do. So I learned Latin and all of the other subjects and theology and moral theology and ethics and passed all my exams on them, knowing that I'd never used it. So I had to read on the side to find out what the real world is about, knowing that that was dead in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when I was ordained in 1969, um, I was ordained then, uh, and I knew that everything i had learned was absolutely, utterly useless. Uh, and uh, I I learned as much as I could on the job. And then in 19, uh, about 10 years later, uh, I asked to go to, for a, a year's study postgraduate thing in Berkeley University in California so that I could get a a theology that would be, hold me together in this world. And the theology was really, see, when you look at it, Dylan was questioning everything. Christopherson was questioning everything. Simon and Garfunkel were questioning everything. Van Morrison was questioning everything. The the artists were actually on the same level. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's why the, the music to me was more relevant than the theology. Right. The Joan Baez of this world, the American brothers, uh, the, the, all those, you know, Carl King, all those fantastic writers, and and, and their, their songs are still brilliant. They're still, you know, you, you listen to a song of, 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 of uh, like Simon and Garfunkel, and uh, Dylan, uh, Johnny Cash, from that era, Merle Haggard slightly later, but they're all talking, trying to find a reason for living healthily.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that's what all the music was about, country and other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Beatles the Beatles are the same. You
0: know? And speaking of the Beatles, um you in while in Mount Argus, um you were quite rebellious really.
1: you know uh, know, you're complimenting me as being rebellious Uh, i hadn't the brains to be rebellious just the honest to god truth of it eddie i really hadn't the brains to of it i did the stupidest things because i wanted to do them i wanted to see the beatles because the beatles had come when i was in the novitiate i come out of the novitiate in uh, in october 63 and on the way to university i could see nothing but beatles I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And since we weren't allowed to get papers, I had no way of finding out, you know. But I sneaked around record shops and so forth and we were allowed to listen to hospital's requests on a Wednesday afternoon. And sometimes Terry Wogan or Mike Murphy would play the Beatles. And then I said, these guys are just different. They were absolutely different. And so I saw they were in the Adelphi. Well, you know, you know it was nothing for me to go to a dance, you
0: know
1: what I mean? Yeah. so I thought it was. I'd so, you're out. in Kimmage, I wasn't, I was in Harsh Cross in, there, we were near Kimmage, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I, the, the back window was open, and I went down the stairs when they all went to bed because they're in bed at nine o'clock, and and they all went to bed. I got out and got a bicycle and, and rode down to Abbey Street, I knew where Abbey Street was, uh, and I got down to it, and with a collar on me. <laughs> <laughs> Because they had no other clothes. Yeah. Uh, uh and and the guard says, I young father, he says, I don't think you should be here. This is not where you should be. Uh and he, and so those those the guards were holding back mountains. And did people. you tell them you were in heaven? Uh, here at the Beatles. <laughs> i i I saw the Beatles and didn't see the Beatles. I got as far yeah. as the door, and all I heard was screaming, screeching, some movements on the stage and all the rest. Of it. I can't say I saw the Beatles It was boy band stuff, wasn't but it? it was it was it was colossal, it yeah. was colossal, and then, then a panic struck me about ten o'clock, so I'd better go home. Uh, uh, you know because you, you, God knows I then I thought what have I done so I got in the best went back home parked it got in through the window went to bed never told anybody until it was 10 years at the end
0: <laughs> <laughs> and did you confess it to an, Why? To, to an old priest
1: no I did, did, but you? I, did. <laughs> yeah. uh, I said, I said I'd, I'd, I'd done something that I shouldn't have done I, went, I got out one night uh but i got back in and, and he says uh are sure, back in you're all right there was no there was no problem to it, no he,
0: he'd never heard of the beatles he, so he did, <laughs>
1: uh, there was no point telling him about the beatles because he went he thought i was talking about things and cockroaches <laughs> were on <around> the floor <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you mentioned hospitals uh requests there uh trassa davidson was one of the presenters uh, on mm. uh, on that and uh she missed her cue or overran her uh, script one day
1: yeah, the one I heard was Trassa Davison. And I broadcast with Trassa later on and she did not like to be reminded of it. So <laughs> that tells me that it, that it was Trassa Davison. Uh, it, it was, there were famous ones. There were a number of famous ones in it. And that was one. Uh, the it, Coming up to the half one, you, you learn afterwards, you know, uh, that you never go out in the middle of a, a record that has a story. So if you're going to finish a program, you finish a program with a nonsense song or an instrumental, right. but not with a story in case you have to fade it, because it's a mortal sin to fade a story. Yeah. And there was a famous song called The Hole in the Bucket uh, by Harry Belafonte, humorous, funny little thing. There's a hole in the bucket, and it went on, 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 a big story, and go and listen to it and you'll find the end of the story. But Traster Davison suddenly realised after about two minutes into the song that it was news time, and you dare not do that. So she did the most obvious thing. She got the engineer to fade the record. And she says, well, now, Lady and I'm afraid we'll have to leave Harry Bell and Fondie with this hole in the pocket. <laughs> 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 and she never finished the lesson. I didn't need
0: to. <laughs> uh, cue laughter all around Ireland. <laughs> in kitchens all around and, Ireland. And in hospitals. And in hospitals. <laughs> uh, yeah, in hospitals, yeah. Um, and you... You got to know that you got to become friends with the um, show bands.
1: Mm. Yeah, again because of no money uh, or anything like that, and again because of the connection with Oma. Uh, the the bands used to come down. They stayed all stayed at that time in either the Belvedere Hotel, um, most likely the Belvedere Hotel, uh, uh, or oh, in Denmark Street. Um, and I got to know that. And and a Thursday, evening, we were allowed out, out with out on a Thursday evening and you'd put it on your collar and you'd get on a basic and you'd take it into a street, walk up and down it hoping that somebody would ask you in for a cup of tea or a bun or some damn thing something normal but we had no money to do it uh, so occasionally I would myself and another guy I'd, say, I'd go up to the Belvedere and we might meet some of the Splattermen or Bookaroos or Polka Dots or Melodias or whatever some of the boys from home and I went up and I got to know them there and they knew what rightly what is wrong and they know then they'd get you a cup of tea or Get you a biscuit or a bit of cake or something like that. And um, so then, because they stayed there, then you got to know the Mighty Evans who stayed there. You got to know some of the Royal who sometimes stayed there. You got to know the Royal Blues who always stayed there uh, Old Man Trouble and Doc Carroll. Doc Carroll. Andy Creighton was the manager. Um, And all of them, they stayed around there. So after a while, I knew all the bands. Uh, And there was a famous solicitor, come songwriter come gangster, come <laughs> all sorts of things. He'd love to be called that. A guy called Eddie Masterson, whom I'm sure you haven't known, but I'm sure you've heard about Eddie. Uh, um, yeah. and, uh, I know
0: he's, the legend. That the legend it. is yeah. It
1: his, was his. Uh, and he, 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 he lived in, he was a solicitor, yes, without an office. His office was the inside of his overcoat, the pocket, the inside pocket of the coat. Smoked cigarettes without taking them out of his mouth and chain smoked the whole day um didn't drink um went to dances all over the place with bands if they got into trouble with fines he got them out of trouble so looking for somebody to buy a house he bought a house Uh, um, if you're you're, you know you're talking to some of the boys about how eddie bought houses and how he didn't buy houses It's, it's incredible some of the stories about that as well um but mainly he was involved in music and sport you know Uh, He knew everybody in music and sport because on the Road to Crow Park, he he stayed in the same room in Barry's Hotel for 17 years. Wow. 17 years. One room, 17 years. Uh, That was his home. Live in. uh, And at that that Mm. time. And everybody called in to see him in that place. Yeah. But endless trade to Barry's Hotel.
0: He was like the priest of Barry's Hotel. Eh? He was like the priest of Barry's uh, Hotel. Even
1: more, people wanted to talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and, um, so... He, I, I was walking on one of these pilgrimages on O'Connor Street with no money in my pocket, and looking for somebody that I knew, when three boys outside the Gresham Hotel, I can still see them to this day, Eddie in the middle, and a wee small man on the outside, and a very tall, well-dressed man on the inside, See them walking down. And as I was going up to them, Eddie says, oh, come here, come here. He, and he said to the boy on his left hand, side, that guy will write for you. I'm looking, I wasn't allowed to read a paper. Stage. Never mind, right for Never one. Never mind, right for one. And I said, What do I do? And he said, he said, Right this man's starting a paper in, in to rival Spotlight, because Spotlight doesn't give the country bands anything. So he's starting a paper of his own. He has nineteen ballrooms of his own. He can distribute it and sell it on that. And 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 he wants to start of and he's gonna he's gonna be the man that's putting it together. That's Jimmy Malloy from <clears throat> Main Street in Longford. He's a wee printing press down there, and that's Albert Reynolds. You know the Reynolds ballrooms, that's him. So I said, but I can't write for a paper. I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be sent home if I was caught writing for a newspaper. Um, and they said, and Albert said to me, what's your father's name? And I said, Hugh. Well, that's great. He says, you'll be known as Huey in our paper. He said, you can call yourself. And we'll also do a column which you call the Rambler. So nobody know who you are. So send two articles next week. And that was in 1960. I think it was the year after my mother died, 66. And I don't think there's a week since that I haven't written for a paper.
0: Really? Yeah, yeah.
1: Because yeah. I wrote for that every single week for as long as I could. Yeah. And then I was the editor of The Cross as soon as we I'd been because I was writing articles every and, and editing them. And as soon as I was finished The Cross, it was The Sunday World and 46 years with yeah. The Sunday the World. World. So yeah. I don't think, I honestly don't think this has been a week that I haven't had to meet a deadline yeah. or several. Yeah. Yes. Since 1966.
0: Yeah. Dancing News was a great little magazine. It was. I, I, I wrote for it myself. It l- indeed. Later on. Yeah. It did indeed. Before, it, before I put it out of business. Before it went. Before it went. But, but it was a great. It was great. It was a great little kind of paper. Absolutely. And then Eddie Masterson would go on to write um, a tribute to Jim Reeves.
1: Wrote many songs indeed. Yeah. Offerly the Champions. Yeah, uh, when the Hoarders, when the Fortepress won, uh, and and they were awfully the champions. He wrote that, and Sligo the champions. Sligo got the one that here He did a great thing. Ah, he was funny. He 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 was a very funny, witty, funny man. Loved by loved by the people in the band business. And he went to a dance in Carrigmacross one night, and the Mighty havens were there. And Jim Reeves had just been killed in a car cry, in a plane crash in July. 31st of July, 1964, I think it is. <clears throat> so it would have been the next year, maybe a couple of months after that. And Jim Rees was hugely popular in Ireland. He Huge, was that time. yeah. Massive, massive. Biggest country star that ever was in Ireland. Isn't Garth Brooks, although he is big, Jim Rees was the biggest that is ever here. Love me true Or is he holding you The way I do Though love is blind, make up your mind. I've got to know. Should I hang up, or will you tell him he'll have to go? You can And young and old loved him. You know, it was just beautiful, and and um, uh, so all his songs were known all his songs are known and eddie sort of made a composite of the songs and in nashville down in tennessee a plane crashed through the skies and then put in a little bit of a song you'll have to go and put your sweet little little little, little, and he put it together all on a sweet afton uh, uh, back of a sweet afton packet and he brought (laughs) it up to ronnie griffiths was the nearest one on the stage and he showed it to ronnie and talked about it afterwards said that'd be that'd be hit and larry didn't want to do it at all,
0: Larry Cunningham, because
1: yeah. Larry Cunningham, he didn't want to do it because he didn't think it was anything good. But well, um, Ronnie said to him, There's a low note in it, and I can't hit it. You know, you'll have to go, but your sweet lips little, and the sweet one, you'll have to go. And so that that is a low note in it. And he says, And you'll know, so he, I, I said, I'm going to have to do it myself. How do you get to those low notes, Larry? Of course, Larry says, Show me that. And, of course, they hit the thing low notes. And Larry got used to singing it. And they recorded it. And it was the first show band record to get into the top ten in the British top ten
0: pop jars and Brian yeah amazing and there's an amazing story behind uh, Larry Cunningham and Jim Reeves as well how Larry became Ireland's answer to Jim Reeves uh,
1: Larry <clears throat> Larry always had a low voice in fact he, in an interview with me he said before me there was no low notes in Ireland as <laughs> only Larry could put it yeah. now that's, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing statement to make but when you knew Larry it wasn't an amazing statement to make you knew what he sort of meant you know. Yeah. and I said what about Shea Hushes well Shea was good already Shea Hushes was the lead singer of the melody aces and he also sang Jim Reeves um, uh, because he was in the American Air Force and he was he, he cut the American stuff and he was uh, was marvelous Gibson Guitar first Gibson Guitar I saw in Ireland it was with Shea Hutchison and the weird was uh, um Jim Reeves came to Ireland at one time uh and it was he was badly promoted he thought he was coming to do concert shows with concert pianos and so forth. Um, I remember I've talked to the members of his band who toured with him afterwards because they were session musicians in in Nashville and they were the ones who backed all the Irish singers when they're in Fireside Studios with Porter Wagner in Nashville. Susan McCann, Brian Call, Philomena Begley, um, all those. It was Jim Reeves' backing band in those. Um, And I talked to the boys about it one time and they said... He, Jim was in bad form because he was hoodwinked into what he was doing. He thought it was concert hall. It said it was back rooms and ballrooms here and there around the country. Pianos, none.
0: He had one stipulation that there would be yeah, a piano, piano. In, in, er, in, in, in every tune. In every venue. In
1: perfect tune. Yeah,
0: yeah. A tune piano. And he was promised that.
1: He was promised that.
0: And pianos and were taken the, out of out what, hay sheds and.
1: One show a night, he was done. But he mind was mind. also doing two or three shows. Hundred miles apart in Ireland at that time on roads they knew that a donkey was used to going. Yeah, you understand what I mean? It wasn't. We don't big have the motor, Didn't have the motorways. No, no. And and so he was in bad form, and he went to one place in Donegal, and Larry and them were the opening show band for And so then he just the piano. The piano on that night was impossible to play, and Jim said, "He can He, I can't. You know, I can't do this." and and sang a few songs. Didn't walk off the stage. He didn't do the full show, but he didn't walk off the stage, if you know what I mean. Mm. So because of that, there were a lot of hits that he didn't do. And Larry then said, I know those songs. And he got up and he sang the Jim Reeves songs. So he almost did the show that Jim Reeves didn't do. Yes. And so.
0: Overnight. Overnight. Larry Cunningham became the new Jim Reeves. To Jim Reeves. Yeah. I remember reading a story that uh, Jim Reeves, um, he, he was interviewed by an American newspaper magazine and um, he was asked about, you know, what are the audience like over there? And he said, the audiences over here are some of the best I've ever encountered. The pianos are the worst.
1: <laughs> did say, I remember saying that on, on radio one day, that the guys in the band told me that the, the one, they said the audience were great, but the one thing, they did not get a piano in tune in the whole tour. Listening to the program was Bishop Eddie Daly, God be good to him, in Derry, the famous white hanky man, yeah. who promoted Jim Reeves okay. in, in the Guildhall in Derry. And he wrote me a letter and he said, Brian, that is not true. He said, The the, the piano in the Guild Hall was perfectly tuned, was a perfect piano. And Jim Reeves wrote me a letter saying that it thanking me for the wonderful show that I, and the wonderful care that he had taken off them. And he enclosed the letter that Jim Reeves had sent him. So there was a piano. (laughs) Thank the Lord it was one. (laughs) It was one in Derry. Uh, 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 And Bishop Daly, I have that letter somewhere, but the bishop the bishop's letter, he got a letter personally from Jim Reeves, thanking him for having it tuned piano.
0: Now don't worry folks, Father Brian's story is just beginning. So join us on our next podcast and you will be sharing with many more great memories. This has been My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. This episode was produced by Ian Malini and the theme music is Rose Gold Renegades by Jesse Frisell. If you enjoy this episode, do consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eddie Rowley and this is My Country Life.